0: This is 1059 the region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is in my view up front, up close and uplifting. Yeah. Perdita Felician is every woman, but then again, she's like no other woman. She's a 10-time national champion, two-time Olympian, and the first and only Canadian woman ever to win a gold medal at a world championship event. Today, she is an accomplished sports broadcaster, a gifted television host, an engaging public speaker, a best-selling author. Perdita is also a wife, a mom, and she is her mother's daughter. Perdita Felician joins us now in conversation. What a thrill to have you on the show, Perdita. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be with you. You know, your mother obviously was an instrumental influence in your life, all of your life, and she still is. Why did you chronicle for the public to absorb your life together with your mother? My Mother's Daughter is the book, and it is a must-read
1: I just thought it was an incredible story that my mother was able to transform herself from this you know, young girl, not a lot of education, selling on the beach as her life, to be able to have all her children living and thriving in Canada. Like There was something I didn't understand about how she made the leap. Once I started to understand it and dig through our family history, I thought this is astounding
0: that she's been able to do this. And so that, to me, is a story worth telling. Tell me, though, how she did make that leap. What, what What's the backstory on that?
1: Well, look, my mom was about, you know, 11, 12 years old, and she had to drop out of school, which she loved, and she was selling on the beach. That was her job. She would make these little sea necklaces with my grandmother, and she would sell to tourists, uh, most of them white, most of them wealthy from abroad, England, Canada, the United States. And one day, a family from Oshawa, Ontario, uh, Sarah on the beach met her up, and you know she babysat for them. She just asked volunteers; had never babysat before, but she asked to babysit their their three months old. And they said yes. Uh, and to speed it up, they eventually would come back and forth to the island, and they invited her to come to Canada to be her nanny. And she accepts the invitation. But you know, you should know that my mother at that time was a teen mom, so she had two little ones, one and two. She's not even eighteen, nineteen years old, and leaves them behind with um, her mother, my grandmother. And I wasn't one of them, but she comes to Canada and leaves them behind. And that's really where the story takes off. And it's a very, very mixed bag. If you, you know, that's one way of putting it.
0: It's really tough for your mom. And what was life like for her in in Canada? And this was before you came along. Yeah,
1: I wasn't on the scene at all. And I wasn't planned. That's the truth that I, I reveal in the book and that I discover as I'm Going back in time. So, my mother is nannying, so she's taking care of people's children and their houses. And most of them uh, are nice and kind, but there are a are, are few and, who take advantage of her, don't pay her a lot of money, um, know that her immigration status is tethered to these jobs. And really, my mother's trying to make a life for herself, but as she's trying to make her, her life, and she's been here for a few years, she gets pregnant with me. I'm not planned. And she has to decide what she's going to do with this pregnancy. Um, It was a hard decision and it wasn't an easy one. And she decides she's going to keep me. But you have to imagine being in this country, not a lot of, you know, status, not a lot of money, no family. You bring a life here, father disappears once he finds out you're pregnant. That just created a more difficult um, and a life really full of hardship for her.
0: How did she survive at that point? How did she continue to, you know, keep herself going, but also carry you? And that's what I I didn't understand how, because I,
1: you know, what my mother faced, the, the not a lot of money, the, you know, the race, the racism, you know, the abuse. I don't know why she didn't just pack me up and go back to her tiny island and just live her life. But I think what kept my mom going is she knew that if she went to St. Lucia and stayed there, which is a beautiful place, but she knew really with the resources that she had, the only future that her children would have, and her again, would be to sell on a beach. And she wanted more. And I, I truly believe that that's what kept her going, knowing that if she can endure and outlast the storm and this difficulty, that maybe, just maybe, her children and her would have, you know, um, a more colorful and a more vibrant and thriving future.
0: Mm. You know, it sounds like your mom, and she's she's doing so well today, but back then she had grit, gumption, determination, courage, and faith. How did she support you once you were born, Perdita?
1: Well, my mother lived with a couple um, in the book, the Harrys, and they were rich and old and a little bit cranky or maybe a lot cranky. And, you know, one of the hard things for readers— Um, you know, the book's only been out six, seven months, but one of the things readers tell me is hard for them to read is the scene where my mother is finally in labor with me. Um, she doesn't go back to St. Lucia because the family has said, well, we'll continue your work status, but you have to still work and live for us while you're pregnant. And she's, she's living in the basement. They don't give her any maternity leave. So her entire pregnancy with me in Oshawa, Ontario, she is just, um, dealing with working for them around the clock. So my mother is, you know, making ends meet, but it's not a lot of money And when she goes into labor with me, she knocks on the door to Mrs. Harry's bedroom. You know, they don't sleep together. They're in their separate quarters. And she's too inconvenienced to wake up to take my mother to the hospital. So my mother has to call a taxi. I guess the woman finally feels bad. She comes into the basement where my mother lives and sleeps. And she says, well, I'll take you. But before she can take my mother to Oshawa General Hospital at the time to have me, my mother first has to make sandwiches for her because she knows, well, my mom will be gone for a few days. What could they possibly eat? So while my mother is in active labor, she is making sandwiches, tuna sandwiches for this family so that this woman will take her to the hospital to have me. That is what the kind of dignities or indignities rather that my mother had to face to bring me into this world.
0: How is it that she did not allow the resentment to sort of drift down toward you as you were growing up? Because there would be plenty of reasons for her to be resentful, angry, discouraged, uh, discriminated against, it would be very tough for her not to pass on those feelings and, and those, those moments to you. And, and she didn't.
1: That is such a, a fair question. And it's such a good question. And I think, you know, people who read My Mother's Daughter, you know, have said, you're not angry. Your mom's not super angry. And, you know, if, if you were to ask her that question, or you, you know, my mom would say, you know, I had a job to do. And I also knew that these people were not a reflection of Canada as a whole. And Canada was full of opportunity for her. So she knew that she couldn't pass down those resentments. I didn't have time to get angry and be upset. Now, of course, was she, um, was she, well, of course, that she was angry, yes, for sure. But I guess she didn't have time to pass on those resentments. Because that would slow her down. She knew where she wanted to go. She knew her destination. And so that would just be baggage that would stop her from moving forward quickly or as quickly as she would have liked. She never passed those resentments on to me. In fact, my mother would say to me, her first Canadian-born child, you are Canadian. That is what you are. And she made sure that I knew that even the years I was racing with the Maple Leaf. My mother was the proudest Canadian that
0: you could find. And very proud she was. Now, from the book, and this was at the Olympic Games in Athens in 2004, maybe maybe not your most memorable set of games, but here's a quote from your book, My Mother's Daughter. I know I'm supposed to be here. This is more than a race to me. I know she is watching the baby she chose not to throw away. Maybe this will finally make her see that everything that happened before tonight was worth it, that she is worth it. That I am worth it, and so are all the other mothers and children like us.
1: Hmm. Mm. You know, I'm 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 welling up. To yeah, hear me, that. Too. <laughs> me too. Me <laughs> too. Of of all the quotes in my book, that's not the one that's often read. It's the one that is so close to my heart, though, because yeah. um, it's true. And I think you know that Olympic moment for me was just a tangible moment a uh, symbol, really. And, and symbols are important. They're, in symbol, they're important in our life. And it signaled to me and to her, in my mind at least, that she had made it, that we had made it. And it was this huge public moment and not a private one. And I really, 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 and wanted that moment for us.
0: Why did you write the book? And how difficult was it for you? You know, I read the book, I think, you have to understand, I, I, write, I raised
1: raced around the world for, you know, 12, 13 years, you know, people in Canada knew and know my name, and I never talked about the story. And I was holding on to it, because I didn't know all the parts of it. You know, I have to admit, there's some, you know, some fear around revealing the things that I reveal, it's deeply intimate and revealing. I really wrote the book truthfully for me, because I wanted to know who I was once I stopped racing, and I, I needed to go back and find the answers. And I think I did. But I also knew I needed it. to to write it for my mom and our family and for others to know especially that it doesn't really always matter where you've been and where you come from and your origins you have the power to steer yourself into a brighter horizon and here's a woman that has done it and my mother has 15 grandkids (laughs) and we are a testament to how she has steered us all in a different and brighter direction
0: when we return for life on track this is in conversation with Ann Romer Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line, info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 105.9 The Region. We are back in conversation with Perdita and Let's talk now about your life as a hurdler, as a track and field star. When did it begin for you? What's your first memory of absolutely loving or seeing that you've got so much potential when it came to track and field?
1: Oh, listen, I'm going to date myself (laughs) and I'm going to date any listeners hearing this canada fitness okay so (laughs) some are hearing this and they're cringing because they're thinking of like grade 16 class or grade 10 or whatever but it's a standardized test they don't have any anymore but it used to be around for many decades and everyone across the country would have the standardized exercise test um you think about it running 800 meters jumping you know all these long jumps and then they'd send your test off you'd get the results and it would be scored against the everybody your age range in the country. Well, in grade 3 in 1989 in Mrs. Arthur's gym class, I was the only one in our entire gym uh or phys ed class to get the excellence badge, which is like the highest level. Uh the youngest, the, the lowest level is participation pin and then it would go up to like gold, silver, bronze, that sort of thing. Um so she really set me apart that day when they were giving out the award and that truly, and for me, was the first day I realized that I had something. I didn't truly know what the something was, but I knew whatever I could do physically, you know, made the other kids in my class and impressed Mrs. Arthur's. And that truly mm-hmm. was the first day. And then a year later, she made sure that I signed up for track and field. And that was the beginning of everything.
0: And you were interested in the 100-meter dash, the 200-meter dash, long jump. I remember all of those things. But how did hurdling find you? I hated the event. Can I
1: say and admit (laughs) that? I do it in my book anyway. I hated this thing. Like who would run full speed at 10 barriers? Nah, not a lot of people. Uh, I really got thrown into it because of my friends were doing it and they were on my relay team and I never would sign up for the hurdles. I would just avoid them at all costs. And one day in about grade seven, they would, they dragged me to the gym to sign up and I had no choice. Mind you, I dabbled for a little bit, but then I quit again for two years and it wasn't, until I went back to high school that I got reintroduced to the hurdles after quitting because the the coach that I had in high school would only train me as a hurdler, even though I only wanted to do the 100 meters and the long jump. He's like, nope, you're a and, and he refused to, to train me in anything else.
0: Hurdling is an extraordinary sport and it's an extraordinary part of track and field can you and you studied kinesiology can you describe because we are radio and I'd like to picture this what it is from the starter's gun to crossing the finish line what is that experience like to to jump over hurdles
1: yeah so the best analogy that i have for anyone to feel what that sensation is like that you're that you're going with and you're trying to override Picture your steepest tobogganing hill that you've ever been on. Like, I'm talking super steep. You're at the top of it. It's 100 meters long. And your job is to sprint, not toboggan down, Mm -hmm. sprint at the top, from the top of that hill to the very bottom of that hill at, like, breakneck speed to 100% of your ability. Now, that sensation will be to, like, stop, slow yourself down, go gingerly. Maybe you want to get on your butt and scoot down. Mm -hmm. The sensation of going... All the way down that at 100% of your might is what hurdling feels like, because everything in your body is saying, don't do this, stop, calm down, this is too much. But your job as an elite pro herder is to override that sensation that says, mm, this makes no sense. And that truly is the best way that I can describe it. Everything in you is saying,
0: hold up, this is dangerous. <laughs> And what is most important? Is it speed? Is it accuracy? How close you are to the hurdle as you're crossing it? Is it balance? What is it that is most important? And why do you think you excelled far beyond anyone's expectations?
1: I love that we get to talk shop like this. I don't often get to talk about the technicalities of hurdles anymore, and I love that you're asking me this. So, all of it. Everything that you just said is important. It's a perfect balance. So if you think about the hurdles uh, in the women's side, 100 meters, there's 10 barriers. I think of each of those barriers as a bomb and that your lane is a minefield. Now, if you touch a bomb, step on a bomb, you know what happens. It detonates. Your job is to get as close, right? Like I'm talking millimeters, right? That's the game that we're talking here. As close to those hurdles so you can clear them because you want to get down on the ground quickly the quicker that you're on the ground the more ground that you eat up and the faster you can get to the finish if you're in the air you're wasting time so it is really a game of speed and agility and balance and proprioception where you are in time and place but so many things can foul you in this event right the wind how fast you get out of the blocks another hurdle maybe making you know contact with you by grazing your arms because the lanes are one meter wide. You could literally reach out your hand and you're touching the woman on either side of you. That's how close we are. And
0: that's how small the margin of error is in the 100 meter hurdles. And speaking of error, were there any that you are comfortable talking about where the whole world was watching you and something went wrong? Oh my goodness. Athens, the
1: Athens Olympics in 2004. And that's the moment I won't ever shy away from asking. So you don't even have to worry about that. I I, I know that's the moment that people stopped what they were doing to watch mm. and can recount it. There's moments that people told me, look, I was at the clinic. I was at the hospital. I was a doctor. I stopped. We put on the TV to watch. And yeah, as soon as the gun went off, two seconds in as the world champion, as the one everybody was watching, I fell at hurdle one and collapsed and completely went down and was not able to recover. And You know, the race is 12 seconds, so I crashed within two seconds. It's still 10 seconds of a race that I watched. And the reason I got to watch the race unfold was because I had fallen backwards uh, or landed backwards. And I saw the jumbotron above my head, and it was so huge in that Athens Stadium that there was nothing else and no place else to look. And what was I watching? I was watching my dream barrel away from me, and it seemed impossible and surreal in the moment.
0: But here's what I know about you. You didn't let that define you as you went on year after year. So 2005 right through until, you know, 2012, you were grabbing titles and and, and receiving accolades and winning this and winning that. And it obviously had a a momentary bearing on, on who you were at that very time when it happened. But it did not stop you from achieving greatness. How come? You know,
1: I think I I had a great sense of self and that's really based on who my mom is. I wasn't defined by any medals or any tangible thing I could put around my neck. But the one thing I will say to anyone listening who's going through their own personal Athens, because that happens, especially in the midst of this global pandemic, is I decided that I was going to outlast my storm. I decided that I had to just endure past this moment of shame and embarrassment and fear of will I ever be good again? I had to endure that. Now, here's the secret, though, quickly. I think hyper positivity can be toxic because you're told you can't show, you know, the or or you can't show that you're fragile or that you're hurting. Yes, show it. And so what I did was I would show up to every practice and I would show up to every race. And I said, the only commitment that I ask from you is that you arrive and you show up. I don't care if you're 10% uh, Perdita. I don't care if you're a fraction of yourself. Just show up. But I encourage anyone listening, just show up as you are, broken, defeated, ashamed, nervous, whatever. But that storm that you are in the midst of right now,
0: it will it will end. It will stop. And you will be strong enough to be at the other side of that. And it doesn't matter what state you're in. When the storm stops, you can do it. You decided to retire in 2013. What prompted that, Perdita?
1: Oh, man, I was over it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so over it. But more specifically, it you know, I competed for a good, you know, three Olympic cycles, a good twelve years. Most others, if you compete for five or six years, four years is massive. So if you think about I did three times that at the top of the world, that's very rare to be able to do. Yeah. So by the time I retired, I was I was emotionally and psychically just exhausted. I was over it. I and I knew once that flame went out in my heart, I knew it was time to stop because I could get hurt. Right. If you don't have that vision and that drive and that hunger for it, you can seriously get hurt in my event. And I knew it was time to walk away.
0: You were very smart to do that. You know, it's it's good when a person knows when it's time to fold them, quite frankly. And you went on to further greatness. What was your first move after you retired? What did you do?
1: Oh, I went to I went to Seneca, um, which is a call. Well, everyone knows Seneca here. Mm -hmm. But I went to Seneca uh, to study broadcast journalism, and I started my broadcasting career. And, um, that really, I wanted people to take me seriously as a broadcaster and a journalist. And I knew the only way that they could do that is if I studied. So I went to that program for a year and, um, it was the best, best thing that I could
0: have done. I loved,
1: I loved, I see why
0: you do it, right? It's so <laughs>
1: It's so amazing.
0: It's so fun. You were brilliant at the Tokyo Olympics, and we kept calling them 2020, even though they happened in 2021. There was this, though, this kind of cloud that sat over Tokyo, maybe literally, maybe figuratively, the, the pandemic, COVID-19. Did that interfere with your excellent broadcasting? Mm, well, thank you for the compliment. You
1: know, I'll be honest, and I can say this now, I was not a fan of the Olympics moving forward, which some people might not understand because I'm an Olympian myself. I just didn't feel like sport should have been the center of the world. Now that it's over, I think that it was the right thing because it brought a lot of people together and people needed, needed the distraction. Um, I will be honest, though. I didn't think that the athletes' performances would be what we're used to. I mean, you have athletes who are swimming tethered to their, you know, their parents' pool and not in like a full-size 50-meter Olympic pool. You have other athletes who are like creating long jump pits in their backyard with not the same usual run up. And so I really thought their performances would be slightly watered down. Let me tell you, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Records were set. <laughs> People were setting, you know, certain like their limits were exceeded. And it shows you the power of, you know, an athlete's mind and their, their will to win. And they're, their, you know, they will leave no stone unturned for, to, to move towards greatness. And so was there a cloud? Yeah. But I really believe those athletes were the rays of sunshine and the rainbows that we all really needed to help us through a really difficult almost two years now.
0: And rays of sunshine and rainbows, I think about your baby girl, Nova. Tell me about <laughs> Nova. Is she, is she like her mom? Is she her, her mother's daughter?
1: <laughs> uh, I hope so. I hope so.
0: She, she's two and a half and she's
1: talking a lot. And she will run in our house, like run laps around our house in <laughs> the kitchen and back. And here's what I will say about motherhood. Um, you know, Nova was, I had Nova when I was like almost 40. And I put a lot of things on hold in my life to pursue excellence and to, you know, represent Canada. And when I wanted to have a child, my husband and I, Morgan, it didn't happen the way we thought. And so... I went through IVF and I remember feeling, this is cruel that I have put all my life on hold. I have such a beautiful family, a beautiful mother, and I cannot become a mother. So the fact that Nova is here, I'll be honest with you, there's so much that I want for this baby girl, but and I'm trying not to put what I want for her all on her, right? Because I feel like she's a miracle. I feel like you know I waited so long to have her and she's finally here. I need to understand that I need to let Nova be her, whether she's my, my her mother's daughter or not. Nova didn't need to just be Nova. So that's a lesson I'm trying to teach myself every day is basically what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> and it sounds to me, you know, your husband Morgan has a great history in sports. He was a journalist with the Toronto Star for I believe eighteen years. He's now with C B C Sports as its first senior contributor. Woohoo, that's so great. But what an interesting environment in which Nova is is being raised right now.
1: Well, yeah, like her mom was like a world-class athlete, a world champion. Her dad played football in university in the States, and we both cover sports. So can you imagine the pressure this poor child is under, like if she goes to school and she doesn't win a race, and her friends are like, wait, wait a minute, wait, what what genes are you having? But the truth of the matter is I think there's so much knowledge and so much insight and experience that we have from sport that we could impart on her. And as much as I think I would make a really, really amazing soccer mom or stage mom, I have to tell myself, like, <laughs> look, she cannot be in, her, in your shadow or Morgan's shadow. She has to be free to be whoever she is. And again, this is my first time, you know, Nova's two years, so I, like two years old. I still consider myself a new mom, but I tell myself all the time. Let her be. She doesn't have to be you or your, or her dad. She just has to be Nova. And look, if she wants to just learn how to juggle, and that's a level of athleticism, that's pretty impressive to me because I cannot juggle. So, basically, whatever Nova decides to do, we will support her and we'll love her no matter what.
0: So, I see three strong females, and 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 you know, I'm including Nova in this. So, I see Catherine, um, your mother. I see Perdita, you. I see Nova just over two years of age. How would you link the three of you? What What's the common thread? Oh, my
1: goodness. Love. Love. As as sappy and corny as that sounds, it is what it is. The other day we were in the kitchen um, and Nova loves to dance, so we turn on the music and it's just me, her, and my mom in the kitchen dancing, and she wants the same song over and over, which drives you bonkers. But that, and I, I looked at us and I'm like, Look at where you are, Perdita. Look at where this generation is. And here's the thing. I lived in a woman's shelter with my mother and my sister. I saw my mother live through domestic abuse. And that was a childhood that I would never want for any child to have to go through. And because that cycle is over, my daughter now knows that's not going to be her portion. She doesn't have to live through that experience. And so when I look at her and my mom, sometimes I'm just filled with gratitude. I'm it, it, it can take generations and generations to stop the cycle. And ours is over. Ours is over. And Nova is now, you know, the, the, the first recipient of this new thriving life. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for that.
0: I feel like you have grown even more as a person because of writing My Mother's Daughter, a memoir of struggle and triumph. This is really neat. A portion of each book sale goes to the Denise House in Oshawa. It's a women's crisis shelter. Why did you decide to do that?
1: You know what? I live there. I was. I know what the kiddies' room looks like. I know what it's like to spend a Christmas in a women's shelter and have my mother you know, leaving my dad because he was just, you know, a manipulator and he was just, it wasn't a safe place. And how can I give that back? How can I say thank you to this place? Because, because of the Denise house, when we went there and we were seeing my dad, they called my mother up and offered her a home. And my mother was nervous to take the home because she didn't have a proper job. I mean, she was a nanny and a housekeeper, but she didn't have any kind of, you know, lots of money for first and last month's rent. And so she, she, had to stay under my dad's thumb, but they said, no, 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 no. We cover that and we will gear it to your income, whatever you can make in Pickering, Ontario. You just have to move from Oshawa to Pickering. And my mother took those keys to that home so fast. And that is truly where things changed. I found sport in Mrs. Arthur's class. That's really where our life changed. My mother was no longer under my, my dad's thumb. So why am I giving back? It's to say, thank you. It is to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because that's truly to me where things changed for
0: us. And may I say to you, Perdita Felician, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I encourage everyone listening right now to buy My Mother's Daughter. It's an amazing book. And we look forward to seeing you in Beijing. Oh, I'll be there. (laughs) Thanks, Anne. (laughs) You're terrific. Thank you, Perdita. Thank you. Follow In Conversation with Anne Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.